Raiders with a Lost Ark. It's the name of today's message. By the way, a big shout out to Sophie Kirian. Where are you, Sophie? 18 today. Woo! All right. Come and see me after service, if you will, so you can impart to me some wisdom now that you're 18. And also, it's great to see Dick and Lori Perry and Trevor with us today up from Florida. They just missed the cooler weather. They had to come and get their taste. Yeah, not really. You know, if they were here, it was something important, and it was uh, Dick's sister Mary passed away very suddenly this past week. And uh, one minute she was with us, next minute she wasn't. And, uh, you know, for the person, it's a great way to go. But for the people who are left, it's quite a shock. And we had the memorial service here yesterday. And uh, we hope that Jesus was lifted up and that the family was comforted. We are in 1 Samuel. We are beginning chapter 4 today as we are just breezing right through this book compared to the way uh, we've gone through the New Testament. But again, I just mentioned that that is the nature of historical narrative. You can't really preach it the same way that you do the New Testament because they are stories that are, uh, you know, kind of unfold and the real messages and the meanings is in the fullness of that story rather than just taking kind of isolated thoughts out of that. As we think about the flow of history, I mean from the book of Genesis unto the end that hasn't even been written yet, the Lord is very careful about how and when and where and to whom he reveals various aspects of his revelation to mankind. He wants to make sure that that is done meticulously and accurately. And everything that he does is with perfect timing. And it is with an omniscient, that means an all-knowing attention to detail. I remind myself of that as I'm reading in historical narrative in particular. Because it is easy to get focused on the micro aspects of a story And there probably and hopefully is derivative application there, but we don't ever want that to trample on and to overlook the broader picture. And the broad picture, as I've mentioned in the past few weeks that we've been in this book, is that everything that's taking place right now in the people of God is with a view toward ultimate fulfillments of the one coming perfect prophet, priest, and king. And that he is the only solution for the woes of the world. In chapter 3, in verse 1, we read that now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. And word from the Lord, this is what it says, and word from the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were infrequent. That's an important beginning. We talked about that. In the same breath, though, then the Lord comes to Samuel and the Lord calls out to him. This was a highly unusual occurrence in light of what I just read, which was only two verses before the Lord coming to Samuel. And then the very last verse of chapter 3 says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh because the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And then chapter 4 begins, Thus, The word of Samuel, meaning the word of the Lord. Because Samuel was the up-and-coming prophet and priest of God. 
Thus the word of Samuel, the word of the Lord, came to all Israel. It's the first part of verse 1. And what we want to do is we want to pay attention to repetitious words or themes when we read God's word. Something is afoot here. What had been rare for an extended season is now changing. When the intimate counsel of the divine was a commonplace and had become rare, now all of a sudden it's changing and we want to ask why. Because if one removes the wisdom of God as the informing authority of all things, and what I mean by the informing authority, meaning how culture, how individuals, how nations, how indeed the world determines right and wrong. And when the informing authority of God becomes skewed, What we find is a world that is so complex that it is utterly beyond our intellect and application. And what we have is truly the blind leading the blind. And for all of the protest from the self-deluded atheists, and I say that because there is no such thing as an atheist, God has stated that he has given the knowledge of himself as creator of the world to everyone who comes into the world And that's why I call them self-deluded. And for the atheist, the very worst thing that can happen to an individual or to a community or to the world is for what I'm going to call the practical grace of God to be in short supply or even worse, to be removed altogether. By the practical grace of God, I mean the where the rubber meets the road, wisdom that God has given mankind for surviving and for thriving in our daily affairs. When God's wise counsel is withheld, then the only guidance one has in wading through this life is determined person by person, moment by moment, and situation by situation. And everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And the law of the land then becomes the whim of whoever happens to hold power. And that power can come in different shapes and different forms. That power may be political, and we know who those people are. Those are our legislators at every level of our lives who enact laws. It may be personal. It could be an employer. It could be a teacher. It could be a pastor. Or it may be physical meaning it could be law enforcement, or it could be the military, or it could be a spouse, or a relationship. And when God's infallible guidance for life is in short supply, or, again, removed altogether, we are left with one of the most dire consequences of Scripture. It comes in the opening chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Rome in the New Testament. It begins in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, now the therefore, you've got to ask yourself what? What the therefore is there for. The therefore tells us that there's something preceding this, that I'm going to read, that caused what follows to happen. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It may not seem like a big deal or like it's universally applicable. But that's only because we don't understand the depth and truly the horror of the passage. What proceeds, what precedes this pronouncement is what God had revealed of himself to all of mankind and still does. But it was rejected in favor of what? In favor of personal opinions, in favor of generally accepted views and convenient morals for themselves and the world in which they live. And the consequences which God himself brought to bear were physical in nature. Let that one sink in. The worst thing in the world in this life is for God Almighty to say to anyone is, have it your way. That might work for hamburgers. It doesn't work for life. For the Lord declares that when someone rejects his revealed truth, even at the most primitive level, and what I mean by that, again, is just the very general cursory knowledge that there is a creator and you are not him. Romans 1. That they are rejecting God's grace and they are rejecting God's love and his guidance, his practical grace for all things here as well as hereafter. And if such rejection persists, God does get to a point. He does get to a point where he gives the person what they want. He allows them to effectively become their own God, determining right and wrong for themselves. And that is never a positive thing. It all started in the garden. Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the tree, to her, was good for food, and that it was a delight to her eyes, and she determined that the tree was desirable to make her wise, she ignored God and took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve rejected God's reveal truth. God's practical guidance for counsel, for life, that the fruit was lethal. That it would poison their minds and their souls, and in fact, it would separate them from their creator, bringing nothing but misery in the here and the now, and eternal separation in the hereafter. Diminishing the authority of the loving creator over his creation is the worst thing humans can do. And today it has not only been systematically diminished, it is being systematically removed so that there is no trace of it. No trace of the only hope for all of mankind. And who do you suppose is behind that? God's people under a series of poor leadership. Remember, this book follows immediately after the book of Judges. They grew further and further away from their very source of life. And I put that in all caps, life, all caps. 
the life that Jesus was alluding to when I said, when he said, I came to give it to you and to give it to you more abundantly. But God is graciously restoring once again in the lives of the people who are wearing his name, his influence into the culture of the Israelites by raising up a new prophet and priest through whom the Lord would again reveal himself to his people. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, and the word of Samuel came to his people. Verse 3, 1b through 3a. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle, and they camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Notice the abnormal process of thought here by God's people concerning the way they assessed what went wrong. The Philistines destroy the Jews, and the Jews assess that it's because God is against them. Meaning their default position for evaluating the current events of life is theocentric rather than anthropocentric. Huh? Theo, God, centric, centered. Their assessment of their lives were God-centered rather than anthropo-man-centric, centered. That is rather different than the overall view and practice of the world today, even in the church that wears his name. 4,000 Israelites are killed in what was a brief skirmish. And just for a point of reference, since 911, in the subsequent 15 years since 911 in Iraq, only 4,500 soldiers have been killed. All that is to underscore the magnitude of what they just came through. And so again, why would their initial reasoning take them to conclude that God was against them? We don't do that. Rarely do Christians do that. Why not blame it on the superiority of the military might of the Philistines? They were the strongest, perhaps, army of the day. Or why didn't they blame it on poor battle strategy on their part? Poor military leadership. And you see, this is where I come back again to my review at the very beginning here in the outset from chapter 3 into chapter 4. Because the flow of the narrative is purposeful. The word came to Samuel by God. The word came to Israel by Samuel. And a tragic life event then came to the people of God. The people's natural conclusion is tying current events to the direct favor or disfavor in this case of the Lord. And that's actually a good sign. Wayward though the Israelites were, they weren't a God-forsaken post-Jehovah or post-Judaistic culture 
yet. Vestiges of Judaism were still present in their lives through the whole rituals of of Judaism. The forms of Judaism were still being rehearsed, even if haphazardly, and even if they were, in fact, pretty empty of true worship as judged by the outward expressions of their lives. And what does the Lord say? In Psalms 50, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I shall rescue you and you will honor me. In other words, put your faith where your lives are or put your lives where your faith is. In other words, I'm not impressed by lip service and empty ritual. Live as though I were actually your king. Continuing in Psalm 50, But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to tell of my statutes and to take my covenant in your mouth? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. He's not speaking to the nations here. He is speaking to his people. And they were apostate. That means falling further and further away from the living God. But whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true word that he has delivered once for all, in the words of Jude, to the saints. Trying to navigate the uncertain tides and currents of life where uncharted shoals or unpredictable obstacles like icebergs can appear. They can defeat even the best navigator of the best ship ripping apart the hull of his vessel in an instant. It took two hours and 40 minutes only for the great Titanic to slip beneath the waves. The warnings had gone out to Captain Edward Smith concerning the risk of icebergs in the area. Some say that he was cautioned to slow down precisely because of that. Oh, but you see, the Titanic was not only the most luxurious cruise ship of the day, it was also believed to be unsinkable. Not through hubris, but through the technical engineering that went into the manufacturing and construction of the ship Captain Smith, already enamored by the very notoriety of the luxurious ship, taking this magnificent ship on its maiden voyage, apparently was deaf to the wise counsel, intoxicated by the glory of arriving in port in record time. Behold, Amos the prophet writes in chapter 8, Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. A famine for words of truth was predicted some 3,000 years ago. And this can come about three ways. It can probably come about a lot more ways. Basically, I've reduced it to three ways. First, this can come about by the material word, meaning the written word, meaning the Bible. 
by the Bible becoming rare, just in its availability, as it is in many hostile nations or in cultures where linguistic barriers have prevented it from ever being translated into the native tongue of the people. It can come about even when the word is in abundance, but few are willing to hear it as it is in post-Christian nations, which used to be reserved only for Europe. And more and more, rightly so, we hear of the United States of America being referred to, and indeed it is, as a post-Christian nation. The third way that it can come about, a famine of hearing of the word, is the word is in abundance, but it is not being preached. The virtue quotient of many Christians is no different from people of other faiths and of no faith. This past Tuesday, gubernatorial candidate Mary Mayhew came in to pay me a visit. We had conversation for over an hour about the woes facing Maine. My parting comment to her concerned the meaning of Matthew 6.33. Seek first. Seek first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. Meaning if our priorities of life are not God's priorities, then we're paddling upstream against a strong current with lead weights in the canoe and no paddles. And the canoe is coming apart. When the warriors of God came back into their camp, verse 3, the elders of Israel asked, Why? Has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And instead of calling a day or a week or a festival of national repentance and mourning before the living God, they had a better idea. They had a plan. Three B. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. <laughs> the presumption that the ark was a secret weapon of sorts was not merely a creation of Hollywood. Carries the ark before him. He's invincible. 
life imitate art or does art imitate life? Anyway, in Joshua chapter 6, Joshua and the Israelites, you remember, were told by God to take the ark and to go march around the city of Jericho, which was a, a walled city with a very high wall that was impenetrable. And they had no chance unless that wall somehow could be penetrated, breached, or climbed over in some way. But God said, no. Arrange the people, and you know the story. Take the ark as the symbolic presence of my presence with you. And every day you'll march around it, and then on the last day you'll march around it seven times, and you'll shout the shout of victory, and the walls will come a-tumbling down. And indeed they did. They entirely missed the symbolism of God's presence with them as an obedient people. They assumed that their victory at Jericho was because of their secret weapon, the ark. Where we are in Samuel is only 70 years removed from the fall of Jericho. When they took that ark around and circled the city, and they wrongly attributed, as I said, to the ark, the qualities that belong to their creator king. And so now here in Samuel, they just got wiped out big time by the Philistines. And they even acknowledged that it's apparently because God's against us. What do we do? How about repenting? No, we got to get the ark. And the ark becomes basically an amulet, which screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan, who did the screenplay for this movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, tracks on. The army that carries the ark before it is invincible. (laughs) That's Hollywood. Israel doesn't see that they need a powerful commanding general. What they need is a lucky rabbit's foot. Verse 4, So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there they carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli... Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Hold everything. I need Libby up here with her cello right now, giving me that plaintive, forbading... That was a pretty good cello. I didn't think we'd have room, but there's always room for cello. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, okay. Hey, it's historical narrative, you know. I'm trying to be in tune here. We've got to spice things up a little bit. Give a break. And why the plaintive wail of the cello that really portends that foreboding as happens in movies, especially the movie like Jaws, right? Because Hophni and Phineas... You remember them from the early chapter, actually chapter 1, chapter 2. The derelict sons of Eli. They're the ones who are attending chaperones to their secret weapon, the ark. That doesn't bode well. The sons of Eli, whom God himself had already given the death sentence, announcing that Hophni and Phinehas will both die on the same day as the guarantee that all that the Lord had said was going to take place will in fact take place. Verse 5. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
All Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid because they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us. I think the Philistines here had more respect of God Almighty than God's people. Nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? Their theology was a little off. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians. Oh, now I see why they're freaking out. With all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And the Philistine commander says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. As daunting as the task was, as petrified as they were, knowing the power of God Almighty. And i got to tell you that in my mind's eye here, If this were a Hollywood script, I was picturing being in charge of casting and I could see none other. It came right to mind instantaneously that Pastor Ken Graves of Calvary Chapel would be the commander of the Philistines uttering these lines. Therefore, men, fight or you will be. Prisoners and slaves, just as they were. My best Ken Graves imitation. It falls very short. Please don't go around and say, Pastor Bill called Ken Graves the leader of the Philistines. Okay, let's give the context here. I can just see that. Hey, Bill, Ken. Oh, no. (laughs) Verse 10. What happened? Well, the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, they died. Superstition. we got to get the ark. It is said, apparently, according to Hollywood, that whoever possesses the ark shall be invincible. Superstition and faith do not ever mix. The Jews put their stock in the superficial forms of their system of worship rather than in the living God who had progressively revealed himself through those forms over the centuries. Today's critics of religion love to jump on the religion is superstition bandwagon. But you have to admit, when they are right at those rare times, when they are right, they are right. The Jews here were totally superstitious. The ark was a good luck charm. It was an amulet. But their superstition is revealed for what it is. Foolishness. 
and tragedy ensues. And let us remember that we who are so sophisticated in the 21st century today, with all the benefit of the revelation of God in abundance, that we are not exempt from superstition ourselves. Some of us here came up through various forms of religion where superstition was and is alive and well. I still see crosses hanging from rearview mirrors or a statue mounted on the dashboard, but I want to be very careful here. And we need to be mindful of the beams in our own eyes. If a pure-hearted, true lover of Christ who struggles with road rage, just for example, places a figurine of Jesus on their dashboard to help in some way remind them that Jesus is watching and listening to their antics and it helps them to be more circumspect of their conduct and their behaviors, their besetting sin, Honestly, I'm not going to fault them. And I would say to other people, why do so many people wear crosses? Everything from the most vile, vulgar, wretched rappers to people who just think it's somehow pretty or sparkly or it's a good luck charm. Can never be too safe. Or why do we get verses or theological thoughts inked on our bodies? Hopefully it's to be a reminder of some such truth that is particularly meaningful to one. But you see, as I say, we have to be careful where superstition takes up and faith is buried. Now, Going back to that person with the plastic Jesus. If someone happened to, let's say they had been detailing the interior of their car and they removed Jesus to take care of the dust and everything else and they forgot to put Jesus back in his place and they're out on the highway now and they're getting on, you know, they're on the merge ramp and they're doing that main merge where you kind of creep, creep, creep and then you come to a stop and they suddenly realize their statue isn't there, and they start freaking out because, oh my goodness, and I'm getting on the highway. Now we're talking superstition. The Lord had said Eli's sons would die on the same day as a sign of what he said would take place concerning Eli's legacy. Verse 12 to 18. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. And so the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does this noise of the commotion mean? And then the man hurriedly told Eli when he came. Now, Eli was 98 
years old, and his eyes were set so that they could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? And then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. Now look at this little detail that is added in the inspired, infallible, and errant, authoritative word of God. And you got to say, why did he put that in? And he died for he was old and he was heavy. Think back to several messages. What was Eli's issue and why God was perturbed and all the consequences that we're now reading about were coming to pass for Eli because he not only did not rebuke his sons for blaspheming the sacrifices and what they were doing with the offerings of meat, but Eli was participating in the meat and lots of it and he liked it. And perhaps this little detail is merely God's almost smirky little detail to say, oh yeah, gluttony got the best of old Eli, and he was obese, and when he fell back, it was done. Speculation. But that detail is there for a reason. And thus, Eli judged Israel 40 years. Everything just as God had revealed through the young prophet and the would-be priest, Samuel. And yet... It's only the beginning concerning the future of Eli's house and the priesthood and all of that. As I think back on this morning's message, would that we had the resolve of the Philistines. I mean, the Philistines understood, at least some of them did, what they were up against. They respected the God or the gods of the Hebrews because they believed what happened to the Egyptians. And they knew that they had really powerful gods. Basically acknowledging, we're already defeated, how dare we? And their bold commander said, yeah, but if we don't do something, here's the outcome. So let's fight to the death if it's to the death. Today, honestly, being candid, Christians are so namby-pamby when their faith is on the line to nothing even anywhere near of what other Christians around the world face. Well, friend of mine saw me praying in the cafeteria and they didn't they have to mention it to me that's it I'll just do one of those things where I'm kind of almost in a trance but I'm not going to say anything or bow my head or anything else for fear of being persecuted oh <laughs> laugh and then say ouch if it applies 
Someone's job is on the line. A nurse. How many bold nurses, and I've known some, who were mysteriously transferred in their roles at their hospital to now have to go participate in attending abortions. And they said, no. They said, well then, you're done. And they said, okay. But that's the rarity. Would that we had the resolve of the Philistines. The Philistines were nasty people, mind you. I'm not saying imitate everything. Just their boldness and their resolve. They were idolatrous. They were brutally violent. But when acknowledging that they were doomed, they were ready to fight to the death rather than become slaves. Secondly, the army that carries the ark before it is obviously not invincible. The people who worship the living God of the ark are. And by worship, we don't mean a pretense. And I'm not saying this is pretense, but it is for some. But worship of the living God means truly living as if he were Lord and King, because he is. And when faced and confronted with that horrid situation, yeah, so Bill, I want you to hide the deficient medical records from the examiners when they come and retest. I know it's not your department, but we cannot afford to flunk this again. Uh, Sorry, Clark, you know I can't do that. That's a felony. I didn't say that to him. I didn't have to. Two hours later, I was done. Three children, a wife, a mortgage, and I'm done. And there honestly wasn't even a moment of hesitation. Anxiety, for sure, but no hesitation. Would that we had the resolve of the Philistines. Finally, the words of Zechariah. The power, the might, the victory of God, none of it is through our effort or our ability or equipping or our desire, for it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this isn't obviously just referring to military might, but even in our very real, very personal struggles against whatever our sins might be. Because greater is he than is, that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. A worshiping people are an obedient people, are a growing people, and growing in holiness and Christ-likeness. To God be the glory. Let's stand. Father in heaven, I believe your Holy Spirit is at work in here this morning. 
I believe your Holy Spirit is at work in each one of our lives, every moment of our lives. But we have a knack, unfortunately, called the sin nature. For drowning out the still small voice, or piling up so many things between you and your hand in our lives and what you want to do versus what we're busy about. That we get just incrementally a little bit further and further and further and further away. Heavenly Father, our world today is a mess, as you well know. Our nation today is a mess, as you well know. And Lord, we don't need the right governor or the right president or the right king or the right form of government or the right military or the right weaponry. What we need, O oh God, first and foremost in the church that wears your name is a repentance before your mighty throne. This I pray, beginning, Lord, with me in my heart, in my mind, in my house, and to the body of faith, and to the Bible-believing bodies in this community, and through the world. For your glory.